Welcome to the Top Advisor Podcast, brought to you by Proud Mouse Influence Accelerator Academy. I'm your host, Bill Cates. In each episode, I interview one of the financial service industry's top performers to learn their secrets to sustain success. These short interviews will get right to the heart of what each top advisor is doing to acquire more right fit clients. You'll be reminded, renewed, and inspired to take powerful action. You'll impact more lives and increase your income at the same time. Now, on to the show. Welcome to this episode of the Top Advisor Podcast, where I interview top advisors for top advisors. My guess is that you make a contribution to your community in some way. You probably have a philanthropic cause in which you're involved, maybe, maybe more than one. And if you do, then you're really going to appreciate this interview with today's guest. And if not, I think you might get inspired to find a philanthropic cause first, because it can be personally rewarding to impact your community in this way and impact individuals in your community. And second, if you do things right, it can have a huge impact on the growth of your business as well. So with us today is Jeffrey Chaddock, who hails from Columbus, Ohio. Jeffrey and I met many years ago uh, when he and I were hired to speak at uh, several events for his company. Uh, we had a lot of fun, and the more I learned about Jeffrey's business acumen, the more impressed I became. So now years later, when thinking of guests for my podcast, Jeffrey was one of the first people that came to mind. Uh, Jeffrey Chaddock, C-R-P-C-A-P-M-A, uh, welcome to the Top Advisor Podcast. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. Uh, it's a heck of an introduction. And uh, yeah, charitable giving, philanthropy uh, is in my DNA at this point. Yeah, I know. And, and we're going to get deep into that. And uh, not just for the benefit of the charities, but also how it's benefited you in your practice. But before we get to that, uh, I'd like you to provide just a bit of context to everyone listening. Give us a, a brief glimpse into your business, a little bit of the structure, a little bit of how you're doing this year. Uh, so people get a feel for your model and, and what you're up to. And, and then we'll get into some uh, meaty topics here. Well, I started in 1988 and had a very, very choppy start at best, as a lot of advisors, I think, could relate. Um, but about 18 months in the career, I, I really had an illumination. The bulb uh, kind of started to, to illuminate to thinking of the business differently and, and focusing on more targeted markets and, um, and, and thinking about uh, the way in which I want to acquire clients and the bigger thinking started to emerge pretty quickly thereafter. And um, it's um, we're now at a, about a $3 billion business. Uh, this year, we're up about $650 million in uh, assets, both in growth and uh, new assets coming in, net flow of about uh, $250 million. And um, it's kind of neat to see that dichotomy from that struggle to, to what's going on today. But if it weren't for the 42 folks, the team members I have that uh, play a, a very important role in getting us there, um, it would not be possible. So it's it's really through the building of, of a pretty neat organization that I'm proud to say we're continually uh, moving along. Um, so it's been it's been an enjoyable ride. You know, it, uh, you appreciate the. Yeah, let me ask you about those those first eighteen months, because all right, so you're talking about three billion in assets, forty two employees. I mean, you you're doing well. Uh, probably some folks are listening and saying, oh, "I don't want forty two employees." 
you know, give me a couple and I'm okay. Right. But you know, it, it, everyone's got their, their model. Um, but where I want to go with this is that that first 18 months, I mean, you probably thought about quitting a few times, uh, maybe once a week during the first 18 months. So, I mean, why did you stick to it? Um, and then now you've come to this, you know, incredible business you've created. What, what kept you going when you were in all that doubt? I, I pretty similar to, I guess, a social worker. I, I thought I was in the business to help people. And, uh, you know, it, 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 I didn't, I, I started thinking zero about me and more about, uh, the client. And I, and I think the transformation was being client centric in all behavior versus anything, but, and that was extraordinarily, um, important and, 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 and to this day maintains that, uh, obsession to, to only focus on the client, never focus on anything else. And, um, it's kind of like the book, uh, don't sweat the small stuff. Uh, that was written probably 14 years ago. I, I think I wake up daily saying, uh, you know, focus on the client and that's it, period, end of discussion. Um, so what does that mean? It means that the marketing and, and the way in which I started to think was was different, the words in which I would use, the tactics that were implemented, the strategy, and certainly the relationships that were forged were much, much more different and dynamic um, after that 18 months of struggle. And um, I made it fun. Uh, that was the other big part of this. I wanted to enjoy it. I did not want to make it feel like going to the orthodontist or, uh, quite frankly, um, you know, another experience that was agonizing. This should be a very positive experience. So do you remember the time when you and I were to speak in an event and someone in the organization picked us up, picked you up at the airport? It was a little bit late. And we had to go to a grocery store to get a lobster yeah. because you used a lobster in your talk. Um, and we talked, what we, we, you talked, I guess the, uh, the, the grocery store into opening up the seafood department to get you a lobster. <laughs> Boy, you have, a, you have one heck of a memory. I remember having to buy a lobster. Well, who could forget this? Yeah. Well, that's, that's actually a point, isn't it? If you don't create a memory, indelible difference if you don't have <laughs> shelf life and what you do you shouldn't do it and what does that mean shelf life is is certainly in the mind where it, it sticks there and i think that um most people have largely forgettable experiences and um i've always been uh, i guess drilled to think that it doesn't have to be that way it can be exciting it can be different that was an example of of a many years ago 25 years ago to be exact um an obsession of of the way in which we thank clients and you know, if you are work through a financial plan, a business owner that, you know, has an awful lot of moving parts to decisions and, and anxiety, and, and, and quite frankly, you're there to help with the confidence level and you get them across the goal line. And, um, you know, you want to do something that, that is pretty special. Live lobsters were a really cool thing to consider. And, um, you know, I just had someone leave my office 20 minutes ago that we did a um, a succulent planting exercise for 660 clients, by the way, that attended. And she showed me a picture going out the door of uh, this one particular succulent that's now about two feet in, in size. And she said, I'm showing everyone how amazing my plants are doing. And you think about such a small gesture of teaching folks how to possibly plant uh, succulents in, you know, cool uh, pots and things, and, and it's not a big deal. And, and um, I can't tell you how many people this year have been um, stop me dead center and, and want to show me uh, several photographs of their 
their plants that uh, we sent kits out to all 660 folks. That's just a quick example. But yeah, I think it uh, it's about creating a, a, an indelible difference in lives. But I think it's also we're uh, there to, um, you know, create a, the best possible experience. And most experiences, whether it be buying a car or going to the orthodontist or what have you, is largely forgettable. And um, it just doesn't have to be. Yeah, and there's a difference between great service and great experiences. Um, so I think a great place to start and dig into some of the content that you and I talked about in prep for this interview um, was something that you called the trifecta of difference. And if I remember correctly, the elements of the trifecta are performance, uh, positioning, and philanthropic leadership, which is really what we're going to really dig into in, in a little bit. But can you elaborate on all of those a little bit, especially performance and positioning before we dig into philanthropic leadership more deeply? So positioning is marketing. I, you know, I like the word positioning. I think most uh, financial advisors get skittish as I do about the word marketing. It feels like it costs money and, and, it, and it, again, it's uh, not really exciting most often, but positioning is just that it's it's how you position the practice uh it's how you position um you know a, a number of things to, to to orchestrate and i use that heavily because you, you really want to orchestrate uh, that aspect of positioning your uh your value uh, positioning the way in which referrals are uh, come into the practice um so make no mistake uh, that one third is 100 marketing and strategies tactics a low cost high impact ways to build your presence. So think of it that way as low cost, high impact. Most folks think the price tag has to be pretty high. And I actually think almost the opposite, that the little things in life. And we learned this from the, the ultra rich, right? I mean, the ultra high value client in some instances get us, gets more tickled or excited or energetic about some of the tiniest things because all the others is handed to them, you know, the bigger stuff. But if you do something that is, um, you know, very calculated, very specific, but it can be little, and it's um, it, it it it's really it's really awesome. I think we all um, have that as a bit of a common denominator of who we are. The other piece is performance, and you know, it, oh, before '08 and '09, I, I can tell you that wasn't necessarily part of the trifecta of of, of, of really mega success. And but I do believe today that that you've got to be different on performance. You cannot do what you've always done. You'll get what you've always got. It's uh, it, it feels to me that it's paramount to not drink the Kool-Aid any longer from the mothership or quite frankly, that of the banks or uh, Wall Street in general. And therefore, uh, you can sip a bit, but to drink it is is probably not always in our, our client's best interest. And I just think that it has to change and, and you've got to work harder at it and I think performance and, and the way in which we deliver that is is absolutely radically different. And it, it needs to be different than it used to be. And we have to be different than others. And I and I believe we do that uh, with a, a, a decent degree of of energy. That means their infrastructure internally. You have to have the CFAs, and you have to have um, solutions that are uh, distinct and braggable uh, by these clients. And I think they want that. They want to brag about that performance with a martini glass. They want to say they've earned 36% in the past 12 months, but done it with less risk. But 
you know, that, that now matters. And, um, I think matters more the, and then that, the other piece that you picked up on it is probably what is about 51% of my life. And that's the hour by hour focus on, uh, being leader, uh, having leadership in, in philanthropy. Um, I didn't expect even high value clients needing this. I, in fact, had rose colored glasses, as my grandma would say years ago, thinking that, you know, as folks had more accumulation, they, they have their ducks in a row when it comes to giving. They have their ducks in a row and how they spend their time in charities and in the due diligence that goes on by these ultra wealthy or even not so mega wealthy, uh, five million, uh, let's say net worth and above, uh, it's all been done. And quite frankly, it isn't. And I don't know if it's because people are living longer that they aren't as interested as they would have been 30 years ago to, to um, I think, make a charity and uh, the vetting and the due diligence a priority, but it is widespread that it, it is not being done. So we're um, playing a, a, a bigger role than ever dreamed. Um, never would I have thought 15 years ago that, that we would uh, play a centralized role in helping clients. But that happens, Bill, when you, know, you start with folks that are 50 and, and now they're 85 and they've had uh, decent businesses and, and certainly great consistent savings and, and their assets have grown. And, and um, now we've got their trust for because of 35 years in relations that, um, that, that we're really partnering strongly with them on sourcing how their money is going to be utilized, including uh, current giving through the requirement of distribution, which is uh, certainly pretty, pretty unbelievable as well as uh, plan giving and, and, of course, appreciated stock still is that old school way of magnifying your gift, if you think about it. Uh, those uh, are constant on a daily basis to the point where it is over 50% of the work I'm specifically doing. And I, and I want to get to that in just a second, but this you, you've used the term a couple times and you used it with me years ago. And it's this idea of experiences that have a shelf life. And I remember... Uh, when you, when you told me about it, you did a sushi rolling class. Again, we're going back some years. Uh, I remember these things, Jeffrey. And, and what, what you liked about the sushi rolling class is that it had a long mental shelf life. In other words, if uh, let's say you do a wine tasting. Okay, that's cool. People like it. Does it stay in the brain as long as a sushi rolling class, which is kind of unique and different? Well, probably not, right? And so when people go out after that to have sushi, they tell their friends, yeah, I learned how to make that. I learned how to make that. And no, you don't want that. You don't want to know what goes in that, right? It's like all of a sudden they've become an expert in sushi and they talk about it, right? And then people say, well, how did you end up doing a sushi rolling class? Well, my financial advisor organized it, right? So this, this idea of experiences with shelf life uh, has stuck with me for a long time. And, and that's about being creative, right? And doing things that these well-to-do people might not think of, or maybe they could afford to do it, but they just don't marshal the forces that, you know, to actually create it, right? Exactly. You know, you hit the nail on the head. If, if others are doing it, don't do it. You know, and in fact, uh, I'm somewhat actually on a, almost each notepad of mine, I've got Robert Frost, A Road Not Taken, the poem, because to me that taking the alternative road, it makes all the difference. And I do have to believe that if you do what others do, you're going to get what they've got. And so anytime someone is doing, um, you know, this chicken dinner thing at a hotel, which is embarrassing, um, I, I just I just warn them that 
that uh, that's so largely forgettable that your money spend, spent on that is is at risk. And and quite frankly, um, it just doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't take much more to be creative. It doesn't take more money. I can assure you that. In fact, in most instances, um, it can be done, you know, really, really affordably. Um, so I, I really want you to, um, you know, be you know, thinking of, of the idea of, of going the other direction of what everyone else is doing. And it tends to land in a pretty good spot. Um, so, and then have fun with it. Anyone in an organization that is in marketing or building presence is not enjoying putting it together. The chances of the audience getting, um, you know, having fun with it are pretty limited as well. All right. So philanthropic leadership, uh, you know, those are two words I've not really heard put together uh, myself anyway. Maybe others have. What does it look like to you? Um, and, and, and also, how have you used it to grow your business? So it's it's I know you do it because, you know, your heart is in it. You've become excited about about it. And um, it's also helped you grow your business. So so give us a look into all of that, if you don't mind. And we'll just I'll ask you some questions as we go. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, I, the good news is I didn't start it out, start out thinking it was a business builder. In fact, uh, quite frankly, I just thought it was the right thing to do. And, and I started one right about that 24th month in the business. So 18 months failing miserably, six months, I started having mega success. And, uh, and I, I felt that uh, actually, I had a phone-a-thon for a specific university called NASA for a donation. And the young person on the other end of the line was asking for $100. And I said, how about 10,000? How about if I gave, you know, $2,500 over four years to create, you know, some sort of small um, scholarship fund? And, uh, you know, they didn't even know what to re how to react. And it was kind of, kind of fun. And um, but I, I gave uh, when I was young, I was 22 years of age. And I just started to implant it in my thinking that it was the right thing to do, not realizing the power that would be. Um, in, in client acquisition. And it's ironic. Um, I guess I can tell a quick story to tell you how relevant this is. I, 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 I never thought much about this, but I recently, unfortunately, had a very, very good client pass away that met me as a 22-year-old because I was part of this donors club, if you will, this, this society, they call it. And he happened to be the ex-CEO of a, a major um, auto manufacturer in the U.S. And um, really wasn't that interested in becoming a client, but he thought it was interesting. I was so young and, and starting out and we got in a conversation. He asked me to come to dinner, not to ever consider me as an advisor, but to really try to probably be a mentor, if anything. And I did do that. And I did research on him and, and arrived at their doorstep with a, a, a little car. They collected Morgans, which either is a horse or a coin, but in this case, it's a car. And they had um, about 22 of these collector cars. But he recently passed away, and, and during the eulogy, the family paid homage to me being in their lives to push them to live on edge, so to speak, and to to use their resources from a charitable standpoint. They educated 49 children and grandchildren, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, I might add, and and uh, all 49, all 49 were paid for by this these, these folks, and they also gave um, tens of millions of dollars to major causes through my 35 year relationship with them. And it, it all came down though to an interesting meeting when I was 22 years of age, having given just a small amount, but 
it it forged a, an amazing relationship, an amazing client, amazing friend. And I just have to 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 say that none of that was done purposely, but it was done true. It was done authentically, and uh, that's a novel idea nowadays to be authentic. Um, I think beyond that, it, it, I started to notice uh, that exact point of, of, of folks not having it near the direction I anticipated, and I thought it was it behooved me to become a leader uh, in helping them, and leader as in making introductions, the planting the seed. Today, I asked someone to start thinking of it as a person that has a decent amount of wealth, no children, never been married, uh, no siblings, uh, and I even asked about cousins, and, and that hit a brick wall, and um, you know, they're young enough that they don't have to think of it today, but, but I, I st- I'll start with giving them some reading and then um, inviting them to several types of educational events to get them warmed up to the idea of how it can be done, logistics and the thinking. But it really is been cool. Yeah. So philanthropic leadership, then what I'm getting is, is the leadership role you take in your client's life to help them with, with philanthropy and, 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 and giving, uh, giving back. So you meet these people, they've done well, uh, they may be giving a little, maybe not at all. And, but they're not, they haven't put a lot of attention on it and you bring that attention to bear. Is that what, is that what I'm getting? Is that what philanthropic leadership is? Exactly. It, it, it typically is, you know, if, if they see their portfolio grow 35% and their wealth is up 3.5 million for the year, and they think about giving 3,000 or 5,000 because we're all raised sometimes, you know, pretty poorly, or or we we have our thinking that dates back to the 70s or 80s where we're pretty narrow. It's mm-hmm. I think our role to to help make them feel comfortable of, you know, maybe 10% of that gain is something that you could consider not only giving charitably but even to to family members or to uh, the education of the next generation. Um, all all advisors I think do a good job on the giving to the generational side. I'm guessing. Um, and it just felt to me to open up that other aspect of discussion was was a, a prudent thing. And it became a constant in each and every discussion. And not everyone is and will be a philanthropic, but in some it becomes religious, others it becomes to uh, their alma mater, or others it becomes to a community foundation, which is um, a, a nice thing to consider. And um, But then they get to a a pretty much stopping point of, of, of the who, who does it go to and how confident are they that their resources will be used as prudently as they have built them. And that is where we come in and we come in to uh, provide the assurances through a gift agreement, through working with attorneys, uh, through working with the nonprofits to provide the assurance that is as frugal, prudent, and shrewd as the client has been in the accumulation. We want to be frugal, prudent, and shrewd about the organization and the dispensing of of these funds. That piece is missed, it seems, about 99% of the time by um, attorneys, accountants, even the charities, and lastly, financial advisors. And I'm a bit mystified because we take that same care in trust creation for children and grandchildren and even great-grandchildren. But when it comes to the charity and the legacy, that often is is pretty important. You know, it, it, it seems that we should be thinking this way. If, if Bill Gates or Melinda Gates, or if you think of um, a number of, of very wealthy folks have decided to give 80, 90, 97% of their assets, which I've committed to, by the way, uh, as well, the 97% of assets will go to nonprofits. Um, it just it seems to me that uh, we as advisors have 
a bit of a responsibility uh, to help ensure that the money is cared for in an amazing way. You know, the interesting part about this bill is, you know, how many folks now have named the assurance that as it goes to a charity that we manage the money for them postpartum. And that I never did. I just saw a document recently. I did had no idea that we were even considered and I didn't even ask for it. Sadly, I might add, <laughs> uh, but I saw the document and it said, you know, um, you know, and you know, had our, our company name and had our CFA's name in there, which I thought, wow, that's pretty specific. Um, they're funding things now, by the way, today, so they certainly have the ability. But but if you think of that, that's kind of a cool connection. In the end, you you end up uh, uh, drink, you know, bringing the, the horse to the trough. They drink, and and then they end up naming um, you as the advisor postpartum. So that's that's really um, pretty pretty awesome. So uh, obviously this, this is part of that experience that you create because you're right, most, and, and differentiation, most advisors don't go to this length. Uh, I mean, I've coached, interviewed, spoken to hundreds and hundreds over the years, and this is not something I hear a lot. So obviously this is a bit of a differentiator. How has this turned into uh, a, a means of growth? And what I mean by that is attracting new clients to do People love this experience so much that they just naturally talk to others about it. And that's how you get these unsolicited referrals and introductions or, or how else does it, or are you on boards where you meet people and they ask you what you do? I'm a financial advisor and they become clients. What, tell me about client acquisition related to that philanthropic leadership. Well, you're good, Bill. Yeah. Uh, board and board involvement is uh, certainly uh, unexpected major way. And I, I, I recommend anyone to be on two to three. If they're not, I think they're missing opportunity um, and, and doing it for the right reasons, following your heart and following your soul on what makes you tick is critical. Doing something you're less interested in is not what I would consider. I do see advisors often uh, in organizations that they're so far distant uh, personally that it, 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 they're doing it for the wrong reasons. So I just have to bring that up. In in, in my case, it's it's interesting too that I've gotten so close to these nonprofits that they've referred um, a lot of clients, and these are big clients, $10, $15 million uh, folks that uh, have great relationships with uh, their broker, but it isn't in depth to, to this type of work. And therefore, we've worked with other advisors. And by doing that, we've garnished um, half the asset and sometimes all the assets just by nature of caring uh, differently and, and being different. Um, the the nonprofit itself, by just working with them and, and getting the knowledge of what to do, how to do it, um, and, and having it become part of your regimen with such ease because you've done it so much, is that in of itself is is a blessing. And a blessing then that the nonprofit thinks of us, as I mentioned, um, and thinks of us to others. I think when you equally do it with ease for the client, and I'm talking about giving, um, it, it becomes, and if you've got systems, processes, you've got individuals that are heading this with the, the DTC transfers to the, you know, the nonprofits of individual stocks or highly appreciated stock. And all of that um, done with such ease, and I've overused the word, but it, it just makes for a magnetism of, of folks that, that come through that, that, that avenue. And um, it's been, it's enjoyable. It's, it's triple enjoyable. If you think about it, you've got the nonprofit that uh, sings praises. You've got the client that's grateful for that leadership. 
and then you certainly got a business that's being built uh, with that uh, with that mantra. And I would think that um, your employees see see that, right? They see how number one, you're impacting the the lives of your clients in a personal way and protecting their wealth, growing their wealth. Um, and then there's this other aspect of, of helping the, the bigger community in so many ways that they're not just working for a financial advisor for you, right? They're working for, they're, they're impacting the community because of the type of work you do. So it must be pretty rewarding for your employees. Could you address that real quickly? That's interesting. Yeah, it. Um, I think we have a majority of employees that are, that are on board. If there's a, an organization that that needs some uh, some help and support for time, I think our team is uniquely energetic about that compared to others, where they jump in at first for support. I think they they find themselves getting involved. And and when you look at the one on ones, the happiness of uh, individuals doing their job, it is unequivocal one of the top bullets of those one on ones of helping charitable giving and being leadership giving to our uh, clients and and um, very few of our service team or even those that are dispensing advice on our financial planning team um, would not list that is is really in the top three that is uh, it's really telling I, w- I would think that helps you retain your talent maybe even attract um, so if, if our listeners want to get more engaged w- with the philanthropic causes in their community, any, any guidelines for them or any landmines you can coach them to avoid? Well, you know, the, the, the more specified you are, the more, you know, you can get in, in like for an, for a university, et cetera, it's great. But I do think community foundations, uh, align nicely with the average advisor because a lot of donors and, and in this case, clients, have multiple objectives versus one track mind. And um, that typically is something I'd recommend getting very close with, and that is community or regional uh, foundations that serve, um, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of nonprofits. It's a centralized way. It's a simple way. And I think that uh, you can really shine for being able to be adaptive to multiple needs of the client that way. If you think about uh, the due diligence, but equally, when you think about um, efficiency, and you also don't get in the corner uh, from a compliance standpoint of, of driving one specific organization that way. And that that uh, seems to be a bit also good um, because uh, I think Ameriprise, in our case, my broker-dealer will look at uh, the number of checks that go out annually, and I've had several calls on, you know, to the client of, of if I'm, I'm, you know, instructing this or if I'm uh, railroading these these uh, donations. And of course, the client says no, but it 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 um, it's it's an interesting thing, and you want to be careful of that. So the community foundation does an, an awesome job of of mitigating some of that risk. Good, good, good. So in just a minute, Jeffrey, I want to I want you to tell everyone about an incredible project that you undertook that really has created massive value for so many people in your community and, uh, uh, you know, has made you a go to advisor uh, for many. But first, uh, let's pause for, for a word from our great sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by Proudmouth, the Influence Accelerators. It's tough to be seen as an expert if you're spending most of your time as a salesperson. That's why we help industry experts like you spend less time selling and more time advising by turning you into a trusted subject matter authority. 
We help amplify your influence over a growing audience of magnetically attracted fans who will chase you down instead. Visit ProudMouth.com to learn more. You're listening to Top Advisor Podcast, where I interview top advisors for top advisors. And with me today is definitely a top advisor, Jeffrey Chaddock, based out of Columbus, Ohio. So Jeffrey, the Zenner House, this is a project that has created massive value for your community, many organizations and individuals. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Zenner House project. So this is a, a, a home that's in Appalachia, um, Ohio, and uh, it um, was not in good order. Uh, it was pretty much neglected for about 50 years. And I, you know, one thing is to give money, but Bill, the other is to leave something tangible. And Zenner House became um, somewhat of a midlife crisis of mine to, to do something different. And this has been a nine-year project to uh, resurrect or to build this uh, facility so that nonprofits can use it to raise money and to have their board meetings or uh, to have um, – uh, there's a university uh, in our community, Ohio University, and they, um, they use it about 50% of the time for student projects and, and all kinds of student-oriented um, uh, initiatives. So it's really been a cool way to give back. We've raised – uh, almost uh, $2 million in, in, in a period that's, that, that uh, is pretty tight and short. The house has only been done a couple of years. And um, it's just my way after death to leave something besides just money, but hopefully have something that has longevity and does something for the greater good of the community. And it allows for these nonprofits, interesting to the commentary earlier about the number, but allow a number of nonprofits to to utilize one facility uh, to, to make sure they're uh, reaching the greater good as well. So if someone wanted to just take a look at, is it, is it uh, Z-E-N-N-E-R, right? Zenner House or the Zenner House, if they Google that, it'll probably come up. Exactly. You'll get a lot of hits on what that is, but that's absolutely true. Well, it's a beautiful building and, and, and grounds, and uh, it must feel very good for all these organizations local charities, nonprofits to have this place that they can use, right. For meetings, for events. Uh, so you're just, you're, I know you just get so excited about this, this philanthropy and, and, you know, who knew, right. When you were 22, that it would, it would grow into this and, uh, an incredible business, but incredible business that gives out, gives back to other people. So I, I just got to give you kudos for that. I think it's great. So, Bill, it, uh, the first thing that comes to mind in talking with you, especially um, how you have evolved, how has COVID um, changed in the way in which you've been coaching others for referrals and growing their business? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people thought it would make a huge difference. And my experience is it, 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 it's not a lot different. Right. Okay. So we're meeting with Zooms rather than meeting in person. That felt weird for a lot of people, but the people who embraced it um, did very well. Uh, you know, when COVID first hit that March of uh, 2020 and then the market crashed, uh, I was training a company, actually, a pretty successful firm that's in Barron's top 100. I think they're 14 right now. So we were going through the whole process. And then COVID hits, right? And so we can't get together to do our live event. Uh, a lot of hand-holding going on for two months. All the advisors we're doing were pretty much over-serving their clients. But you know what? That really helped them because then when we got back on track to doing the things around referrals, 
they were they had become super referable because because they because of all the the contact and now that i i talk to other folks people i'm interviewing for the podcast and they to a to a person they've all said well i've been in touch with my clients a lot more than i used to be because of covid and because of what happened with the market initially and then they realize, well, you know, maybe I should always have been doing this. So what's what's changing is many, many advisors are doing a much better job of staying in touch with their clients. So what that does, of course, is make them more referable. And so they get more unsolicited referrals, which is great. Um, we did an interview that will be on our podcast, the Top Advisor podcast of uh, two women who have a referral only business. Um, in seven years, they doubled their AUM, uh, I'm sorry, they doubled their clients and they tripled their AUM without asking for referrals. Why? Because they became more referable. So for those who were flexible enough uh, to take advantage of uh, uh, the opportunity to stay in touch with clients more, uh, maybe not in person, but still stay in touch, maybe do some fun events virtually, uh, they become more referable. So the asking for referrals, the the asking, all of that hasn't really changed. You just got to get past the fact that you're on a Zoom rather than in person. And people are getting more and more natural with this. It's becoming more uh, a natural thing and people are feeling better about visiting with clients on Zoom. And of course, what's changed with for many advisors is now they're just going to do Zooms a lot more. I mean, I had a an annual meeting, not an annual meeting, review meeting with my advisor the uh, a couple of weeks ago. I wasn't feeling well. I didn't really feel like driving to the office. I said, "Aaron, can you know? Can we do it over the phone, or can we do a Zoom?" He said, "Sure." And what would have normally been an hour meeting was probably about thirty minutes. We covered everything we need to cover. We also schmoozed about personal stuff, just like we would if we were in person. So it's more efficient. And that adds to the referability of the advisor when we have that opportunity. So, you know, it's changed in some ways. Uh, I've, I've talked to many folks who were doing the virtual thing even before COVID hit. And they go, well, what's the big deal? It's, we've been doing this for a long time. Um, so, you know, I think it's changed things much less than people really think. Um, you know, all right, you can't do the in-person introductions as much, but otherwise, uh, you know, it's, it's business as usual and in, in my observation anyway. So thank you for asking that. And, you know, my last question for you is I, just to think back, you know, you're a very reflective person. You're a mindful person. Uh, over the last 12 months or so, uh, how is, how have you changed or how have your business changed? How, how has Jeffrey Chaddock uh, grown over the last year? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting you um, brought up, uh, you know, what would take an hour to be half hour. I think um, the capacity has been an amazing, uh, great, wow, kind of uh, eye opener in terms of having more. And, you know, just the efficiency of what's gone on the past 18 months has, has allowed me to, to think very, very differently about how to move forward. And um, and to, to really have our key needed, too. And, and I think that means uh, experience the deepening of relationships, deeper frequency, as you brought up, but also the idea that we have capacity to bring in new, whereas we might have felt subliminally there was walls that we probably put in front of ourselves to even indicate that, you know, 
I think that there is a nonverbal that goes on um, among most advisors to say, yes, I'm in business or no, I'm not. And um, I think that uh, certainly COVID has, has been probably the, the single best tool for me. And I hate to put it in those terms, given the severity of what it's done to us otherwise. But when it comes to just being uh, awoken of, of, of efficiency and frequency and reaching the client differently, and uh, if you're going to do a client experience, how we have to be more nimble and creative and that all occurred and, and we were forced to do it, which is an amazing, cool thing. So, yeah, I think we're ready for what's next uh, more than ever. I, I, I was more proud of pivoting to technology. Our team did it in a rapid manner. We had uh, run through this many a time for other uh, extreme events that may occur. And so we were prepared. Our preparedness was also uh, about 100 percent, which um, made us, I think, uh, unique in that vein as well. So it it really just made you feel proud and it made you think that we can take on, um, again, uh, more folks and finally uh, uh, put the sign out to to accept new business, even in a greater way. Right. Yeah. Good. I love that. The idea of the nonverbal of whether you're open to bringing in more people or you're not. And, and you're right. It probably comes across in language and body language. And we don't even realize whether we're putting up the green light or the red light when it comes to attracting more folks. Uh, so our guest today on Top Advisor Podcast has been Jeffrey Chaddock. Jeffrey, thanks so much for sharing your story, your enthusiasm uh, for philanthropic and for providing great value to everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate it. It's always great to talk with you. Uh, likewise. So this has been Bill Cates reminding you that ideas do not make you more successful. Only acting on those ideas will bring you the success you desire. Thanks for stopping by and, and listening to another show of uh, Top Advisor Podcast. This is Bill Cates, and you've been listening to the Top Advisor Podcast, sponsored by Proudmouth. Be sure to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the latest show. And feel free to share this and other episodes with your colleagues. And if you want to learn more about the work I do with other top advisors, just go to referralcoach.com.